Well, hello there, and welcome to another episode of the This Is Technology Ethics podcast. The podcast features a series of discussions between me, John Danaher, and my colleague Sven Nyholm about some classic and fundamental debates pertaining to the ethics of technology. It's loosely based on the structure of Sven's book, This Is Technology Ethics, hence the name of the podcast. Uh, In this particular episode, we focus on the question of moral status and whether machines could ever acquire a kind of moral status that means that we have to treat them as more than mere things. This is quite a controversial debate for those of you that are familiar with the philosophy of technology. Uh, A lot of people are resolutely opposed to this idea. I think it's science fiction, nonsense, a distraction from real ethical issues. Other people take it a bit more seriously. So myself and Sven wade into this wade into this debate and share our own thoughts and perspectives, which we have written about in the past. So, you know, certainly I have a fairly strong set of views about the question of moral status for machines, and some of that comes out in this particular episode. Okay, so before I hand over to the conversation between myself and Sven, a couple of quick notes. First, a reminder, we are recording a questions and answer episode, so if you have any burning questions related to the ethics of technology, now is your chance to ask them and figure out what myself and Sven think. Um, We'll be recording that after episode 9 of this podcast series is released, so if you want to reach out via social media, email, whatever format you prefer, and ask a question, then please do so. And then finally... Please consider rating, reviewing, or sharing this podcast if you happen to be enjoying it, because uh, anything that helps to grow the audience for the show uh, would be much appreciated. All right, so without further ado, I'll hand over to the conversation between myself and Sven. Okay, so we are back to look now at um, chapter eight of your book, which deals primarily with issues around moral status and moral patience of, well, I guess like we could think about this in terms of machines in general, but you have a particular focus on robots and specifically humanoid robots. And we might get to why we focus on that subclass of machines in particular when it comes to these questions of moral patience and moral status. Uh, we, now we have like touched upon this already, but just to make this episode reasonably self-contained. Let's start with just the basic conceptual definitions or questions here. And the first one, obviously, is this issue of moral patience. In the previous episode, we discussed agency a lot. Now we're looking at the flip side or the opposite of moral concept of patience. Maybe you could lead us off by talking a little bit about what moral patience is as a concept. Yeah, and I think maybe it's good to kind of contrast and compare it with the idea of moral agency that we indeed discussed in the last episode. So uh, the moral agent is someone who is performing an action that can be assessed from an ethical point of view. Are they acting rightly or wrongly? Are they making the right or wrong decision? Do they have a good uh, attitude, character, etc.? You assess the, the performer of moral action, so to speak. But they may then act uh, in relation to the moral patient uh, towards whom they might be acting rightly or wrongly, uh, whom they might be treating well or not not very well. Uh, and uh, the general idea of moral patience is the class of beings or entities towards 
with whom or which you can act rightly or wrongly. And I say it in that way just because the people have more or less uh, broad views about you know what belongs in this class. I mean, uh, some people think that uh, it's only humans and perhaps only uh, mature humans. I mean, uh, or at least humans that have been born, let's say. So some people make a very sharp distinction between a fetus and then a born baby and they think that uh, once we have been born it makes a humongous moral difference uh, there are others who say that no actually an infant and a fetus uh, are similar that both are either are or aren't a moral patient and so on and so forth so that those are discussions about you know, which humans are moral patients what about a human for example who's in a sort of irreversible coma or maybe he's brain dead uh, does that person still have uh, well, moral status uh, correlates to moral patience. And, and if you are a moral patient, you have a special kind of moral status. That's an, Moral status is another concept uh, we might want to talk about to here in relation to moral patients. Anyway, so humans are often seen as, well, obviously humans are moral patients. And then a lot of people say, well, what about animals? Uh, and then uh, people here disagree as well. So some people say that, well, if the animal is... Uh, you know, has uh, the capacity for some sort of um, you know, consciousness. I mean, people disagree which animals are and aren't conscious. And I think these days people think that tend to think that more animals are conscious than they did in the past. Uh, what kind of consciousness do they have? Some people think that, well, maybe a fish is minimally conscious, but they don't have a very advanced form of consciousness and therefore... Uh, there they lack the kind of moral status that uh, let's say a, a cow or a, a monkey might have uh but as the people tend to think that a lot of animals are moral patients you can act rightly or wrongly towards them now then some people say well what about the natural environment uh, maybe the the, the earth <laughs> the planet we live on maybe that's a kind of moral patient i mean some people think that uh, so you can act rightly or wrongly towards the natural environment. Uh, you can act in a way, some people say, that fails to sort of respect the value of the natural environment. Uh, or you can act in a way uh, that is I don't know, honoring or being resonates with the intrinsic value of the natural environment, etc. So these are all discussions about which entities belong in the class of the moral patients. Uh, the, the patients being, again, moral patients here being... Uh, beings or entities towards which you can act rightly or wrongly. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm so curious as to why you define it in terms of right and wrong action. Like when I think about it intuitively, I I tend to think about a moral patient more in terms of an entity that can be harmed or benefited in some way. Um, I mean, I could imagine that that would get you into maybe certain difficulties in that you could think that, you know, a lot of things can be harmed or benefited I, I don't know maybe like my car it has a certain way of functioning and if i act if i treat it recklessly i'm harming it in some sense and, yeah well, the, and the, then the if you think about always use our toasters yeah well yes <laughs> you can harm the toaster in the sense that it can disable it from functioning in the way it's supposed to you know toast bread or whatever anyway sorry for interrupting. yeah no but i suppose, I suppose like even even if you're def defining it in terms of harm and benefit there's kind of like a moralized versions of harm and benefit you know, okay, you can interfere with the functioning of an object, and that's maybe a kind of harm, but maybe that's like an analogous or related to our kind of moralized conception of harm. And maybe it's not worth kind of getting getting into all of this, um, but you're 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 defining it broadly anyway. 
partly because you want to kind of encompass those debates about actually what belongs within in the class of things. Yeah, and also the remarks that you just made help to bring out that there are different views about why exactly something is a moral patient. Is it because you can disrupt its functioning? Uh, well, I guess on a sort of Aristotelian view where doing well in life means that you achieve your distinctive kind of functioning as a as a pig or as a human or as a chicken or whatever it might be. And then, I mean, I guess Aristotle would say that it's only certain kinds of functioning uh, that matters in terms of whether, uh, you know, dis disrupting or disturbing that functioning is a kind of moral harm. But that would be one theory that, you know, you, you mess with the functioning of something. Another theory that maybe is very popular, uh, I just saw a story about Peter Singer trying uh, lab meat. <laughs> he's, I mean, he's associated with this idea that you shouldn't eat animals because they suffer. And the idea that the capacity for suffering is what uh, you know gives you moral status and makes you into a moral patient. Now, uh, when Jeremy Bentham uh, discussed that idea back in the 18th century, he was responding to another type of theory of what makes you a moral patient, namely the theory that if you can talk, if you can reason, if you have rationality, then that is what makes you a moral patient. Uh, so from that point of view, well, animals, they can suffer, they can be well or unwell, doesn't matter because they cannot talk, they cannot reason, and therefore they don't have the properties that would make you into a moral patient. And Bentham said, well, ask not, you know, can they talk, can they reason, but can they suffer? Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean there's kind of two, two things I want to take up here. Just initially, maybe we'll talk about um, the relationship between patiency and status. Like, are those... Are those essentially equivalent concepts or is there some important distinction between saying that X is a moral patient versus X has moral status? Uh, well, I mean, this is a good good question. I mean, quite often they are discussed as some sort of rough equivalent. But, but on the other hand, uh, I guess you could say that being a moral agent is having a certain kind of moral status within the moral universe, so to speak. Uh, this would be more unusual, and usually it's rather that if it's, if you're if, if it's said about you that you have moral status, it's usually implied that you're a moral patient. But um, yeah, I mean, having a certain kind of status within the moral realm of universe, like it's you know, it could mean that you're a moral agent and a patient, or that you're only a moral agent but not a moral patient, or maybe only a moral patient and not a moral agent. I mean, a baby, for example, is often considered to be a moral patient, uh, you can act rightly or wrongly towards a baby, but it cannot make moral decisions and be a moral agent yet. Some people think, uh, we discussed this a little bit last time, uh, that, for example, Luciana Florida, that AI agents can be moral agents, but we can't act, act rightly or wrongly towards them. Uh, I mean, in one of my papers, I interpreted some of your works in Klein that you think that uh, robots cannot be moral agents. I think maybe you changed your mind about that. I mean, we discussed that last time, but they can be moral patients. And so is this to say that, you know, you can have all sorts of combination uh, views about, you know, what sort of moral status does an entity have? Uh, is it both a moral agent and a patient, just one or the other, or perhaps neither? Yeah, I, know, I suppose that makes sense. So like, it, uh, if an entity has moral status, it, it is in some sense subject to or falls within the realm of like moral claims or mor moral demands or yeah. is a bearer of moral rights or whatever i mean i think it is probably true to say that oftentimes when we discuss moral status it is essentially kind of an equivalent to moral patiency because it tends to come up 
I mean, historically, would come up very much in debates, like say about abortion or the moral status of the fetus or something like this. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I can see how they could potentially come apart. The the other question, which is more important, which you kind of started going into in more detail, was like what what is it that gives something moral patiency? Like what properties must it have, if any? Um, and I don't know, like maybe it is worth contrasting or distinguishing between what you know david gunkel would say the the properties based view or mark david gunkel mark kukelberg the properties based view and the relational view like i will to lay my own cards on the table i'm probably much more a fan of the properties based view as opposed to the relational view so the properties based view is that you have to have some kind of property you have to uh, instantiate or um realize some kind of property in order to count as a moral patient and then the debate becomes like, like what properties must you have so you mentioned already you know, two views. You might have like the sentience view that the only thing you need to have in order to count as a moral patient is just the capacity to suffer, to, to feel pain or pleasure. And that, that can actually be a relatively like, well, we assume it's a relatively basic kind of uh, uh, first personal property, right? That um, it probably extends very far through the animal kingdom. It, you know, it's likely that worms suffer in some sense I, I would guess like they can feel some kind of pleasure and pain they certainly have aversive responses to things you know higher order primates definitely have would appear to have um this capacity to suffer so that, that's one view but then you can have kind of like maybe like higher order cognitive views that you know it's not just the capacity to suffer it's the capacity to uh, have like to be a person. This is a view that was common in debates about abortion. If you look at like Michael Tooley, for example, uh, writing about abortion and infanticide in the early 1970s, he would say that well, it's okay to to um, terminate a pregnancy or to even kill a newborn child because they're not persons. They don't have an enduring sense of themselves over time. So you need to have that sense that not just that you're aware of your existence at this moment in time. But that you you have this sense of existing through time, having desires for the future, having memories of the past, and so forth. So that's sort of what you need in order to have the kind of moral status that that justifies you know having a right to life or something like this. Um, or and you kind of mentioned maybe a kind of I don't know if you would call it a Kantian view or something that you know you have to be a rational reasoning agent in order to have uh, moral patience. Yeah, and I yeah. want to add something about that view uh, that we didn't mention yet, uh, namely the idea of having a will that other people can respect or fail to respect. And so I think in common sense thinking, uh, that is sometimes taken to be extremely important, for example, when it comes to uh, consent, such as sexual consent uh, or medical consent to medical treatment. Uh, the question is not uh, there whether or not you... Uh, I mean, it, it matters ethically whether or not someone enjoys a sexual experience, but uh, uh, it, what makes something into rape or or, or not uh, is, uh, you know, the, the issue of are they consenting to it? Is it against their will or not? Uh, or if, you know, is it is a medical procedure uh, okay? That is also a matter of, you know, is it against the will of the patient? It's not, uh, you know, maybe I'm, I'm your dentist and I'm giving you some really uncomfortable dental treatment but you have consented to it and it's perfectly fine what i'm doing so there the, the issue is what goes against your will or what is compatible with your will uh what do, what do you consent to uh, agree with is seen as very important 
And so on that kind of theory, uh, if you can suffer, but you don't have a will in any sense, then maybe uh, at least you're, you, you might be a partial moral patient because you can suffer, but you're not maybe a complete full uh, moral patient in the fullest sense because you cannot give or uh, you know withhold consent to, to treatment. Uh, and maybe, I mean, you said that I brought up two positions. I mean, I, I guess that the other view I brought up, the, the sort of the Aristotelian view, uh, I mean, it's not really discussed in those terms very often, like, you know, being having a certain kind of functioning makes you into a moral patient is typically rather uh, seen as, as giving you the status of a moral agent. Uh, but I guess you could just translate that into a view of, you know, what makes you into a moral patient, namely, namely that you have a certain kind of functioning and then people can act in ways towards you that fail that might harmonize or fail to harmonize with the function that you're supposed to, I don't know, have or carry out in, as as your type of being. Yeah, um, I mean, like to be fair, I think within within the context of the debate about machines, this I mean, it tends to be largely the kind of sentience type view or Absolutely. maybe the, the person yeah. type view that uh, uh, dominates. But I mean, that's also maybe discuss just a little bit up front about the alternative view, the kind of relational view. Like, I'm actually not sure if I can summarize this very well, because I'm I'm not entirely sure that I know exactly what it is. But maybe you can start off and I can offer some opinions on it as I go along. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I think it can be explained from different points of view, so to speak. But one uh, way of explaining it would be in, indeed to, to focus on what you said before, namely that the views that we've talked about relate to the properties uh, of the moral patient. Uh, if you have certain properties, namely the capacity to suffer, whatever, if you have a will, if you uh, are rational, then having those properties makes you into a moral patient. The idea uh, for the relational point of view is partly that we, let's move away from the properties of the entity itself or the being itself and instead look at how others are treating or regarding uh, the being and like what kind of role does it play within a community uh how do other people relate how the moral agents relate to that entity uh and so then it could very well be that uh something or someone actually lacks certain properties that are typically seen as morally relevant but they're treated as if they are morally important uh and I mean, this does also find some support in sort of common sense. I mean, so we talked about people who maybe are brain dead or, you know, maybe are uh, fetuses or whatever it might be. And so it, it could very well be that they lack some of the moral properties that people that typically are seen as relevant. And yet people in this, you know, relating to these uh, humans in certain ways might be treating uh, that fetus or that brain dead person as if, they have an important moral status. So this is one way of explaining what's going on, namely that people are sort of attributing moral status, uh, maybe not by say, saying I attribute moral status to you, but, but sort of behaving as if something or someone has an important moral status. And so it's about how we relate to entities. Uh, and do we relate to them as if they're important? Then maybe that helps to confer moral status if we don't then maybe well i mean this is actually something that people sometimes worry about when it comes to this theory let's say that i'm someone uh who lives uh you know in, in the past uh, i'm a you know i'm a, uh, you know you're my slave and i relate to you as if you lack any particular moral patience or moral status and perhaps a lot of people in society do and so 
Uh, does that mean that you don't have any moral status? You're not a moral patient? Uh, a lot of people would say, well, no, it's just it just means that I'm unethical in the way that I relate to you and that I should change. Why? Because you have certain properties that you know, justify a different kind of treatment. But we, we can get back maybe to the objections uh, later. But the, the, I mean, as you said, it's a little hard to put your finger on uh, the idea. And sometimes actually David Gunkel, who you mentioned, says that he's not presenting this as a normative view, but rather a descriptive view of how things work. And then he says, and I, I think maybe partly correctly, that sometimes we don't first ask, okay, well, let's let's uh, have like an inventory of your properties and then we decide whether or not your moral patient is rather that we we just sort of naturally respond to certain other entities or beings in a, in a kind of way that suggests that we think of them as moral patients. And then maybe later we sort of think, well, okay, actually they're sentient, they're rational, they're this, they're that. And that, that the attribu attribution of morally relevant property sort of comes after uh, the attribution of moral status. This is something that uh, David Gantel sometimes talks about, that, that it sort of happens the other way around. As a yeah. matter of empirical fact, as rather than like that this is the way it should happen. So I, I think it's, it's, it's a little bit slippery because he's responding to normative views uh, and so it's quite natural to, to say that, well, actually what gives someone moral status is the behavior or the, the way of relating, uh, and especially if that's supposed to be a response to the properties view. Yeah, um, so I, I think I think the relational view makes more sense, certainly as a descriptive view or a description of kind of like the the phenomenology of how we approach other entities and how they kind of enter into our moral community. And we, as you say, tr start treating them as moral patients um, but I mean, yeah, I mean, Gunkel and, and Kuckelberg and people who've defended this view have certainly presented it in some, to some extent as a critique of the properties-based view so that there's problems with the, the properties-based view. And I, I mean, I follow that critique and that critique makes sense to an extent because they, and we'll probably get into all this, but they'll say things like that. It's, you know, it's, a, it's very difficult to know whether somebody actually instantiates those properties. There's disagreement about what those properties actually are, which ones really matter, which ones really count. Um, and you know they, they will say that there's a an anthropocentric bias inherent in the, a lot of those kind of properties based views that we start with the assumption that adult mature adult humans are moral patients so we can work from there and maybe that's a sort of conservative uh, perspective or approach that will unnecessarily exclude too many things from moral community. So I mean to extend all of those things makes sense as a normative critique. But then when you say, well, the relational view, how we relate to other entities is what determines their moral status, that seems unsatisfactory to me as a normative or moral view because it doesn't kind of give us a clear reasoned or justified basis on which to decide which things should get into the moral community, which things should count as moral patients or not. Um, you know, and they they will give examples about like our relationship with animals and okay, we we relate much more closely to certain kinds of animals like pets. Um, and maybe that means that we kind of treat them as members of our moral community, but, you know, insects or wild animals, because we don't relate to them so closely, we, we don't share social spaces with them. They're excluded. But the, the, the difficulty for me is that, is there actually sort of a defensible normative basis for that distinction or not? And it seems to me that the relational perspective doesn't give you an answer to that question. And maybe to some extent, you know, uh, 
Kunkel or would, would embrace that uncertainty. Uh, um, but it seems unsatisfactory from my perspective anyway. Yeah, and so, I mean, I agree. But So maybe mention just one more thing before we start talking about robots. Uh, one thing that Gunkel and Kockelberg do is that they say that the properties view is a very Western way of thinking about moral status and that they say that other traditions are much more uh, you know, in the relational type of uh, way of doing things. And I think, I mean, I think that's something that can be discussed. I mean, one example is the type of figure that we talked about in previous episodes called Ubuntu philosophy from Southern Africa. I think this sort of admits of a relational reading and a properties reading. So uh, Chris Ware, my uh, former colleague in Utrecht, he has a paper which discusses this in the context of the ethics of technology, where he says that, uh, you know, in that tradition, there's this idea that we become persons through other persons that uh, somehow in, in, in a community, you, you, I mean, it's a little bit like some feminist theories of the, the self, that uh, the self sort of is generated in a communal context and we, we shouldn't think of ourselves as sort of uh, separate atoms uh, uh, with, that exist independently of each other. Uh, and so one reading of that way of thinking about ethics is that actually you, you both become a person and a moral patient by being a member of a community where you are welcomed into the community and you kind of live in a communal kind of way with other members of the community. On one reading, that is a kind of relational theory of moral status. I mean, another reading is that you actually have to have properties that make it possible for you to enter into a community. Uh, let's say that you are, I mean, there are certain kind of animals that uh, live kind of by themselves and they sometimes maybe meet, meet uh, you know, a mate and they mate and then they have a baby, so to speak, but then they go off and live in a solitary way. Uh, and then there are other animals that are social and they live in packs or groups or whatever it might be. Uh, and human beings would be an example of the kind of animal that you know, we can't even survive without other people, basically. I mean, there's a small subset that can do that, but most people cannot be happy, cannot thrive, or even survive without living in a community. And so uh, it's you could say that we have properties such that this we're sort of suited for communal life. And uh, then the question is, can I be a successful member of the community well, for that, I need to have certain virtues. Uh, in, in this tradition, people often talk about things such as solidarity, willingness to share, uh, compassion towards others, uh, respect for uh, you know, one's uh, parents, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, it's care towards younger members of the community. So on one reading, this is actually quite a properties-based view as well. But And I just want to mention that one of the things that Gunkling and Kokobar sometimes say is that you know, this fits with a lot of other tr traditions but uh, my response would be that actually well for some of those traditions you can actually read them in different ways yeah i mean it might be possible to kind of split the difference between the views to some extent insofar as um <clears throat> if you take an ubuntu type perspective that the, the person becomes a person through other persons whatever that slogan means uh i mean one way of reading it is that like i think you probably do need certain like basic foundational properties in order to become a person, but it's probably true to say that your person-like properties are honed or uh, developed and you're assisted in your development of those properties through your communal relations. But, um, you know, if you don't have a basic capacity to understand others or experience the world, you know, you're not going to develop into a person in that kind of full 
full moral sense. And in, in, you know, with a trivial example, like a, a stone isn't going to become a person just by relating to persons or being involved in a community, if you know what I mean. Um, so may, like, so maybe there is some way of splitting the difference there. So, I mean, um, like we've, we've talked a bit about, about patiency and status, the, the properties view, the relational view. Ultimately, like obviously it matters whether something is a patient because it matters for our ethical duties towards it, uh, our response to it, our actions towards it, uh, whether it can suffer and so forth, whether whether it belongs to the moral world. Uh, you focus in your book on the moral patiency of humanoid robots. I suppose that kind of raises an interesting question as to why you chose that particular focus. Yeah, well, I mean, well, maybe I should first just say what I mean by a humanoid robot. Uh, it would be a robot that looks and to some extent behaves like a human being. Uh, and uh, we can maybe talk about some examples in a, in a, mo a moment, but that, that's the general idea. So, I mean, I, some robots, uh, such as the robots that work in factories building cars, uh, uh, they don't look like humans, they don't act like humans. And uh, I think also for that reason, people don't really tend to think that, you know, we can be unethical in our treatment of them because they're very clearly very machine-like. Uh, I mean, it should be mentioned that actually sometimes people even respond to those non-humanoid robots in ways that indicate that they treat them as moral patients. I mean, there's this case that people often mention in this literature from Julie Carpenter uh, of soldiers in Iraq uh, who treat treated a bomb disposal robot uh, as a moral patient by sort of mourning its demise and giving it a military funeral and, you know, wanting to care for it and honor it and for its achievements, etc. I mean, yeah, so that that would be, I mean, maybe unusual, I mean, because often, uh, I mean, people always bring up the example of a toaster, you know, if your toaster breaks or you accidentally drop it on the floor, that's usually not seen as a moral problem, but rather, okay, I have to buy a new toaster. Uh, and so, so the, re the reason why I don't focus on robots that look like boxes or that look like, you know, whatever they might look like, but rather robots that act uh, and, well, behave to some extent and look like humans is that here, it seems to me that's more likely that people would respond to these robots in a, you know, what's sometimes called an anthropomorphizing way, attributing certain human-like properties to them, including the property of being a moral patient. And indeed, uh, there are some robots, real-world robots that look like animals or like humans. And when people act in, I mean, there's some famous videos when people are kicking a robot dog in order to show that it's, it's good at not falling over, it's very stable. A lot of people watching those YouTube videos that were put up uh, by, I think it was Boston Dynamics, did respond by saying, oh, it's wrong to kick the dog. And there's another video where they, there's a vaguely humanoid robot where someone is hitting it with a hockey stick, again, to, to show that it doesn't fall over easily. And there, too, a lot of people felt that ah, it seems to be something slightly wrong with hitting this vaguely humanoid robot with a hockey stick. So if you if people have those kinds of reactions to robots that vaguely look like animals or vaguely look like humans, well, what about a robot that would look a lot like a human or, or, or that would behave very in a very human-like way? Uh, we we have some robots like that in in, the, in real life, uh, in science fiction they're very common, uh, and in science fiction uh, people tend to naturally see them as moral patients, and I am guessing 
that the more humanoid robots will become in real life, the more people would sort of at least feel intuitively that perhaps uh, it would be wrong to you know, perform acts of violence or deg degrading forms of treatment on these robots. Uh, so, so that's the sort of the, the reason why I, I discuss humanoid robots in particular, that it just seems to me that the more human-like something is, the more it will, I don't know, prompt people to have sort of moral reactions uh, with, with respect to people's treatment of that entity. Uh, but uh, I guess you could argue that if there is a robot that doesn't at all look like a human, but that can suffer, of, well, of course, then maybe it's human-like in, in the sense that it can suffer, but it might not, might look like a box or whatever. So, uh, But if it both can suffer and looks like a human and can talk, etc., that just might mean that people will be more strongly inclined to take seriously the question about whether or not it's a moral patient. And that, that's, that's why I focused on that type of robot. Yeah, so I mean, there seems to be like a, a practical rationale for focusing on humanoid robots insofar as they're the kinds of robots that seem most likely to raise these questions initially. And, and as you point out, they all are already raising these questions because, you know, re reactions to the Boston Dynamics videos, but also there's a whole you know raft of experimental psychology studies on how people morally judge our actions towards humanoid robots which which seems to suggest that we do have these kinds of moralized responses to them we sometimes treat them like moral agents and we hold them to certain moral standards but then we also think it's wrong to harm them in certain ways or act in a certain way towards them i mean whether whether they can in fact be harmed is obviously a contentious issue but acting in a way that seems as if it would harm them like kicking it over or you know hitting it with a stick it does seem to um Kind of provoke a moralized response amongst people. So there, there is a, a rationale for focusing on humanoid robots. I suppose, like, one issue here, however, maybe a slightly kind of epistemic point, but it, or a kind of conceptual point or vagueness issue is, is like, like, what, what is human likeness? So it seems to me, at least, that human likeness is multi dimensional, right? So, like, what does it mean to be like a human? There are many different dimensions along which you can be like a human. You can be like a human in terms of your physical appearance. And obviously there's degrees of human likeness in terms of physical appearance. You could be like an, a human in terms of your physical behavior. So, you know, um, that's, there are some robots that walk like humans, but maybe don't look particularly human-like or have like human-like faces, like the, the Atlas robot from Boston Dynamics is being kind of humanoid in the sense that it has arms and legs, but, you know, it's not like the Sophia robot from Hanson Robotics, which has this kind of animatronic head and eyes and facial expressions and so forth. So it has a one type of human likeness in terms of its walking behavior, its physical movements, but not in terms of its other kind of physical appearances. You could also be human-like in your cognitive behavior, your responses, your speech. So it seems like human likeness is multi-dimensional to me anyway. And obviously, you know, if you think about this multi-dimensional space, there's certain kinds of robots that are going to be really human-like across all these dimensions. And obviously they'd be the paradigm case of something that would raise these moral questions. And you could probably think about your science fiction examples here to fit within this, like, you know, the 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 replicants from Blade Runner or data from Star Trek or something like this. These these are very human-like in their physical appearance and their behaviors. Not perfectly, but uh, cl very cl close enough. Uh, but there's other things that kind of 
are human-like maybe on one dimension, but not on another dimension or on a couple of dimensions and so forth. So uh, humanoid seems to me like a, a complex concept. Um, and it could well be the case that depending on how generous you are in your ter- interpretation what in, of what counts as a humanoid, even focusing on humanoid robots actually does encompass a large variety of different machines. In, indeed. And I, one thing I find fascinating is that actually some of those different theories about moral status uh, or more moral patience that we talked about before would single out different areas of the space of human likeness as being relevant to moral status. And so if you are human-like in the sense that you can talk and reason, but not in the sense that you don't you know, you don't look like a human, maybe you don't, maybe you don't even have a capacity to suffer, then theories that say that what matters morally is, you know, the capacity for speech and reasoning would maybe say that, yeah, you have a very high, uh, important moral status, even if you don't look like a human, even if you can't suffer like a human, whereas theories that would say, uh, well, let's say sort of a, a theological theory that says you know being created in the image of god and if you if you think that that somehow means looking like a human uh you know maybe the fact that you don't look like a human matters perhaps from an ethical point of view i don't know uh or you know if you have a theory that says that the capacity for suffering is very important and then you have a robot that indeed is human-like in the sense that it can suffer but it it doesn't look like a human and then maybe you're in a different part of the sort of space of human likeness and and still you matter uh but anyways I, i'm the way i'm thinking about it is that you could you could be maximally human like if you sort of score highest on all these dimensions you, you look like a human i mean you, a, the robot looks like a human it can feel and suffer etc and have emotions like a human sub- subjectivity like a human and it can also behave uh outwardly like a human uh, I mean, and you could imagine all sorts of combinations here. There could be a robot that doesn't really move, but it has internal suffering, et cetera, and internal thought, and, and maybe looks like a human or one that doesn't look like a human that has the inter- and, and so on and so forth. So you can have all sorts of uh, combinations. But as you said, then the the one that would be the, the best candidate for moral patience would be the one that looks like, behaves like, uh, has an internal subjectivity, subjective consciousness like a human. Uh, and uh, you also mentioned that there is an epistemic uh, important difference here, which we will get to I, in more detail. Like you can maybe tell from the outside whether something behaves like a human. You can tell from the outside whether people think that it looks like one, but it's going to be much more hard to determine whether it has an internal subjective experience that would correspond to a human. That would be something that would be much more difficult to determine. Yeah, and I mean, so that we can sort of get into this question now. So that, I think, yeah, that's the issue in terms of when you come, when you come back to like what properties qualify you as a moral patient. If you're focusing on certain kinds of easily verifiable properties, like like the capacity to reason, I guess is, is you can verify that you can assess it through various kinds of tests or prompts or probes. Um, whereas the capacity to suffer is, seems like something that's less easy to actually ascertain or determine uh, and so this kind of comes into the question then of whether robots humanoid robots can be moral patients now like you have an interesting structure to your discussion of this and that you focus on three separate questions right so you focus first on whether they can actually have the properties that make them eligible for moral patiency second can they imitate or simulate those properties and third can they symbolize or represent them in some way 
So we'll take each of those questions uh, in turn. And let's start with the first. Let's start with the first one is like, can they actually have the properties that make them eligible for moral patiency? And, you know, I mean, to, to, to confine, well, we don't necessarily have to confine our analysis, but like, I suppose to a large extent, a lot of the debate here is on like kind of a basic mental property, like sentience, maybe to some extent, other kind of personhood properties, like, you know, sense of self over time or capacity to reason. But it seems to me like sentience is the primary focus. People also use, you know, cognate terms like consciousness, which depending on how you define it is broader than sentience you can different grades or types of consciousness uh but they're all roughly dealing with the same thing that the the robot has some kind of mental property that qualifies it for moral patiency so like you know sim simplistically here's my view on it that they're kind of like fairly well entrenched camps out there i would say and that there's some people who think that no well, they, well let me say this there's a few different views there are probably some people, hardcore people, who say no. They definitely can never have those properties. I mean, then this might be a view that fits very well with a certain kind of religious ethos. You know, that only only humans could ever possibly have these properties that qualify them for moral patiency. And a machine, a created thing that's created by man, could never possibly acquire those properties. Um, then I suppose there's there's kind of two views which are more like, well, you know, in principle they could have them, but right now they don't and it's you know it's very clear that right now they don't have these properties and they won't have them for a very long time so it's not even really worth taking seriously this question about whether they have these properties right now like the property the capacity to suffer and then there's maybe like a a third view that says they can have them but it's actually it's a much more close run thing as to whether they have them right now or in the very short term future maybe we're right on the cusp of creating robots that will have these properties or Maybe we already have to some extent. Maybe we can. They, there are robots out there that have some sort of minimal degree, at least, of sentience. That that's roughly how I tend to kind of parse the field at the moment. I know people like David Gunkel have different, uh, you know, matrix matrices for for classifying people. That's that's kind of how I see it. I mean, how do you see it? Uh, yeah, well, I, I see it in the same way as you do. I, the reason why I divided up the, the debate uh, in, in terms of these three questions, can robots have more relevant properties? Can they imitate them or simulate them? Or can they represent them? Is that I think this is a neat alternative way of classifying different positions than the one that uh, uh, David uses in his work. I mean, so he, uh, just maybe we should just very briefly mention what he does. He asks, uh, uh, can moral... Can robots have moral properties and should they be assigned moral status? Uh, can they have the properties, but they shouldn't be seen as moral patients or they should be seen as moral patients, even though they can't be moral patients or they sh can't and shouldn't or so something like that. Yeah, I, that's, I, mean, I think that's pretty accurate in terms of, yeah, the kind of four different positions. Yeah, that's right. So And he has a very nice... Uh, uh, discussion of this, and then he also says, "Well, actually, there's also two other positions. Namely, we shouldn't even be discussing this question uh, on on the one side, and then on the other side, we should think about this in a completely different way. And that's where the the kind of relational view comes in. Now, um, I think that that's interesting, and that's a very nice. And his book, uh, David uh, Ganko's book, Ro Robot Rights, from 2018." It sort of lays out the debate in, in terms of those distinctions. But so I wanted an alternative way of thinking about things. And 
that's where I got to these three questions. But I, and I should also mention that this is this is to do with properties views, and then I also say that well, okay, okay, it could also be the relational view that maybe wouldn't fit into these three questions. But but yeah, you're right. When it comes to the can robots have moral properties issue, then I certainly focus on the issue of can they have the kind of mental capacities that uh, we associate with moral uh, status, such as capacity for suffering or you know some sort of consciousness of some relevant sort. But it could also be, can they have the capacity to will certain things, to consent to them, et cetera? Uh, I mean, I should maybe mention one more thing, uh, that uh, there, there could be kind of an overlap uh, between at least some of these three questions. And so maybe the fact that you behave like a human, maybe that is a morally relevant property so that there's, there's a certain overlap. But like the fact that you behave like a human maybe means that you have a morally relevant property. Uh, the, the reason why I nevertheless make a distinction is that views such as your own view uh, is, I think, better explained in terms of not really having the property, but like behaving as, as if one has a morally relevant property. Because typically, uh, then, uh, I mean, maybe, maybe we focus on the first question but now, but then we get to it later. But anyway, the, the idea is that it's, I'm not saying with the three questions that there are three sort of mutually exclusive alternatives. It's rather, as you said, that this is a nice way of classifying and introducing the debate. And uh, as you said, uh, there is really quite a bit of discussion, uh, both among philosophers and psychologists and computer scientists, et cetera, et cetera, about whether robots can have these mental properties that are seen to matter. Uh, I mean, someone like Joanna Bryson, for example, has a very interesting view. She thinks, so she's a sort of roboticist, computer scientist and psychologist, I, I think, who has moved into uh, ethics. And so she's now an ethics of technology professor in Berlin. She thinks that it's possible to create conscious, sentient robots, but we shouldn't do so because it's better to not have robots with morally relevant properties. I mean, that's a very interesting and sort of indirect view, whereas someone uh, like... Uh, well, John Stuart Gordon, a friend and colleague of mine, he says that, well, we don't yet have these robots, but once we do, we should immediately start treating them as moral uh, patients. And, and he even thinks that maybe they will be moral patients to a greater degree than we are and enjoy a higher, more important form of moral status than we do. And I mean, this is actually something that we haven't talked about yet, I think, namely this idea that there can be a kind of hierarchy uh, actually, someone like Peter Singer or Jeremy Bentham, they both think that human beings actually have a more important moral status than, than a lot of animals do because we can suffer in a greater a variety of ways. And that was something that you mentioned before. Uh, maybe a worm could suffer very little bit. I mean, like the, the, there's some tiny amount of suffering there, uh, but they can't think about the past. They cannot think about the future. They cannot anticipate uh, future suffering and suffer from anticipation, etc. But we can, perhaps some uh, higher apes, uh, monkeys can do that. Uh, a cow maybe cannot, but maybe has more consciousness than a worm, etc. So from that point of view, there's a kind of a ranking in terms of how important you are from a moral point of view. And, and, and Gordon has this interesting view that uh, actually future robots might rank higher than us because they might have a more advanced uh, type of consciousness and more advanced type of emotional life. Now, I mentioned this in part because some people say that here we're moving into the realm of science fiction. And yeah, it's true. If that were the case, then that robot perhaps would you know, be more important than a human. 
But it's so unrealistic, a lot of people would say, that we shouldn't even kind of talk about this. We could maybe talk, like someone like Thomas Metzinger does, about some sort of basic form of consciousness in robots. And uh, I mean, he has the view that, very much like Bryson, actually, it's possible to build a robot with feelings, but that might mean a robot that could suffer and we shouldn't cause suffering, so we shouldn't build that robot. Yeah, I mean... Uh, we're kind of going, we're going all over the place here, but the, the um, yeah, like the Bryson Metzinger, I think there is a, maybe an important distinction between their view insofar as like my reading of Bryson's argument, well, obviously the classic argument in robots should be slaves, but then I think she had a 2018 article roughly like that, which was like, patiency is not a virtue, which sort of sets out maybe a slightly updated position which has to do with the idea, okay, we could in principle create robots that have moral status, or at least we could create robots that we think have moral status and we treat it as if they have moral status. She's a little bit equivocal, I think, between those two views. But we shouldn't because it would cause just tremendous like social, economic, and ethical disruption. You know, it would involve like moving to a whole new kind of normative equilibrium in society and would just cause too much... Um, strife or revolution or something in, in the short to medium term that we, we just shouldn't kind of move to that new equilibrium. That's how I read her anyway. Uh, Metzinger's view is maybe a little bit more like traditional utilitarianism, which is like, well, we have the potential to create artificial beings that suffer. And actually, they might suffer in ways that we don't fully appreciate or understand. And their suffering could be tremendous. And we have an ethical duty to prevent suffering. So we just shouldn't create anything that has the potential to suffer in. He has this article calling for a, a moratorium on, I don't, he has some term in it, like synthetic sentience or something like that, or the he doesn't use some of the traditional terminology. We should have a moratorium on creating anything that has a potential to have sentience until 2050 or something like that. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think there is like an interesting distinction between those views. But if we kind of loop back to the question of can robots have the properties that allow them to have moral patience. And even if we limit ourselves to these kind of mental properties, as, um, as you say, there's really an important gradation between the kinds of uh, status that something has. You can Some things have a very minimal form of moral status or patience and some of a much richer form because they can suffer or be harmed or be wronged in a, a larger variety of ways. Um, so the, the, the contrast you draw is between the question of can they have these properties versus can they imitate or simulate them? That's the initial distinction. And I suppose to some extent, like my own view on that has always been sort of, well, I'm I'm not sure that that's a distinction with a difference, at least in, in practical terms. I mean, uh, so I get it conceptually that, you know, I'm, I'm fully on board with the idea that there could be like a, a philosophical zombie, to use that terminology, right, that, you know, uh, you could have an entity that walks around like a human being, walks, talks, and acts like a human being, but has no internal you know, mental representation of that or feelings, qualia, sense of self or suffering associated with it. It's just all behavior. But my view has always been, well, if you had such an entity, you'd still have to treat it as if it was a, a moral patient. And so it's an interesting theoretical possibility, but for practical normative terms it's as good as equivalent. And so I've, I've sort of applied the same position 
to robots or machines that as long as they can imitate the properties uh, that we think qualify something to have moral patiency, then it's as good as actually having those properties. Now, there's a, there's a slight distinction in my view when it comes to well, um, and as, like this is this is something maybe I I haven't always been perfectly clear on, but let's say like in in the original way in which I formulated my view on ethical behaviorism, I would have said something like um, we don't actually have to agree on what the properties are for moral patiency. All right, as long as something is sufficiently like a human in its behaviors broadly defined, and by behaviors, I mean you know, physical behaviors, movements, speech, um, and so on. As long as it's sufficiently like a human, we can treat it as if it's a moral patient, even if we don't agree on what the properties are that should qualify somebody as a moral patient. So if we're, whether we think it's sentience or will or personhood. Um, maybe like a slightly more qualified view now is that um we pro like we probably do need to have some sort of agreement on what the properties are, as, and we have to at least agree that the properties are mentalistic in nature, that that they have something to do with the mental realm, and then you can kind of get get the view going. And obviously, it kind of is easiest if you say, well, sentience is what matters, and as long as an entity behaves as if it has sentience, then we treat it as if it's a moral patient, and for all practical purposes, it doesn't matter this distinction between simulation and actual possession of the property uh I, don't, I mean i've probably gone on long enough on that but like the the reason why i favor that view is uh, because i think it's epistemically you know philosophers have gone round and round for centuries on whether you can prove or establish whether something has this kind of first personal perspective and it seems to me that it's just always going to be epistemically opaque to us we'll never really know for sure whether another entity has these kind of mental properties. We can only ever assess that through its behavior. Um, and as long as we're stuck in that position, that's the position we should adopt when it comes to ethics and, and morality as well. Um, yeah, and, and I would also just add, like, I don't think my view is unusual, even though it has attracted some attention for whatever reason, but like it's, it seems to me that it's a view that lots of people have defended, or at least a variation on it over the years. You know, it's kind of in the original Turing test, although Turing wasn't necessarily interested in moral questions. He was interested in whether a machine can be intelligent or how and how would we know that? Yeah, so I was um, going to say that's the same uh, basic view, I would say. Yeah, uh, I mean, so, so maybe two general remarks first. I mean, uh, yeah, indeed, I was going to just mention that I partly read you as. Uh, offering what you might call an ethical Turing test, and so replacing the question about whether a machine can think with the, with the question it's what Turing does: does the machine behave as if it can think? Uh, he thinks that's a clearer question, uh, and you seem to be saying instead of asking does the robot actually have morally relevant properties, we should ask the question: but does it behave as if it does? And that's that's a better question to ask. Why is it better? Well, it's more easily easy to determine the, uh, whether it, because we can observe the robot or the technology and we can observe whether it behaves in the way that we associate with moral patients, whereas uh, we cannot observe its inner life. Let's say, let's say that we think mental problems are important. We can only observe the, what we think are maybe the effects of having a certain mental life or what the sort of behavior that correlates with suffering, whatever it might be. However, 
seems to me that we can tie like this you know, matrices with four boxes. And so you mentioned the possibility of someone behaving as if they have certain mental properties while actually lacking them. And then, of course, there's the option of both having and behaving as if one has certain mental properties. But then there are also actually people who have certain mental properties, but that don't behave as if they do because they're, uh, you know, in some sort of locked in state uh, where they may actually look as if they're in a coma. But uh, I mean, Joseph Finns has lots of interesting papers and a book on this about these patients that actually they, they sit there, they lie there and they have an active mental life. But people think that they don't. Uh, and then they sort of, I don't know, wake up, so to speak, from their coma and can speak again. And they say, well, all the while I was conscious, I was there, I could hear what you were saying, and I was suffering, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So you also have this box of having the uh, inner life, or you know, the moral property, whatever it might be, but not behaving as if you do. And then, of course, there's also the option of neither having the relevant property nor behaving as if you do. And so... Uh, one potential problem perhaps with the point i mean maybe you have a response to this but what do you say about cases where such as the ones that uh, joseph finns discussed uh, where supposedly there is the mental life there but that there isn't the behavior maybe you would then say well later there will be the behavior that would matter because the later the person would say well I, hey all along i was there i was suffering I, I could hear what you were saying i wasn't you know, without an inner life, as you thought, I wasn't in some sort of deep coma. I was awake and conscious. I just couldn't talk. I just couldn't move. Yeah, I mean, I I have a response to that kind of position, and I suppose there's two two responses I would give to it. One is that um, you could deal with those cases in the way that you're saying that you well. Why is Joseph Finns or are people convinced that people with locked in syndrome actually do suffer? There's potentially two reasons why they're convinced of that, but one reason is that, again, we eventually get the behavior that confirms that the person suffers, and that kind of says, well, they were suffering all along, and then we treat them as if they were suffering because we um, we kind of reason back from the behavior that we received. Uh, and, and you could also then sort of encompass these cases within the realm of, like, moral uncertainty that, okay, we don't, we're not sure whether they have the moral status, but uh, in order to kind of err on the side of um, the more likely to be correct moral position towards them, we should pretend or or assume that they do have have moral status because we're more likely to do the right thing then in that kind of case. So that's a sort of moral uncertaintist position that if you don't know what status an entity has, you err on the side of over inclusivity when it comes to classifying something as a moral patient versus not a moral patient. Um, and I mean that's a tricky view, and we can get into. Uh, when exactly should you err on the side of over-inclusivity because, you know, do you, how far do you push it? Like, there are people out there who are, you know, panpsychists who say that everything has a little bit of consciousness in it, including, you know, the, the stones and leaves in my driveway. But, we, you know, it seemed absurd on some level to treat, to treat them as if they were moral patients just because we have that uncertainty about that position, let's say. Uh, so that's, that's one thing. The other thing, this is, this is a trickier position, is that one reason why somebody might be convinced that somebody with locked-in syndrome has some mental life is because they rely on maybe certain kinds of cognitive functional tests mm -hmm. that they can see some sort of, or you know, maybe a sort of neurological test. They can see some level of activity within certain regions of the brain, and they then correlate those with a mental response, and then they assume that the entity has a 
um, the capacity to suffer or something like that. So, I mean, this is this is where the big distinction, I suppose, between my behavioristic view comes with other people who I think are proponents of like cognitive functionalist type tests for moral status is that um, for them, you have to have a, in order to have the relevant mental properties, you have to have something like a brain or something that functions in the same way as a brain that kind of realizes the same functional patterns or networks or um, properties that, that a brain does. Now, it, uh, it doesn't have to be in, you know, neurons per se, it can be in circuits, but it still has to have the same cognitive functional properties. Um, and I, I would call such people who are defend that kind of view uh, mechanists as opposed to behaviorists. Mm -hmm. But I mean, the, the terminology doesn't matter. What, what they're saying is that you actually have to have something that is brain-like in order to have mental properties, even if it's not, you know, a traditional evolved physical brain. Um, my view on that, and which is maybe the more contentious part of my view, is that I think we don't have a good reason. So the only reason why we think that certain cognitive functional states are indicative of mental properties is because we've verified the link between those cognitive functional states and certain behavioral states. So yeah. you put somebody like in a brain scanner and you say, well, think about a red um, apple and you see part of the brain lighting up and you say, well, that's the apple thinking part of the brain. I mean, this is a very simplistic version of those experiments. It's not how they will actually be run, but you know, this is the, the area of the brain that deals with thinking or picturing apples. Well, so how do you know that? It's it's usually because you've, you've verified that through some kind of behavioral test. You say, well, what were you thinking about at that moment of time? Or think about this thing. So you're prompting somebody behaviorally uh, or, you know, you might ask somebody what what was going through your mind at that moment in time, and then we correlate the um, physical, the the functional part of the brain with uh, the mental property through the behavior. The behavior is what confirms the correlation between the cognitive um, mechanism and the mental state. So, th so my view is that behavior is ultimately what verifies all of these things. And so that's why I, I favor behaviorism over this kind of cognitive functionalist test. Yeah, I mean, maybe uh, one comment on that sort of test, I mean, which I think relates to one of the objections that I offered to, to your type of view in the, in the book, uh, is that, um, so let's say that we perform this test, we show you, or we ask you, you know, think about a red apple or you know, tomato, whatever, and you do, and, and then we you know, do a brain scan, and then we see that something is happening in your brain, uh, here, uh, we have a kind of moral duty to believe that you actually are thinking about a red apple and that, let's say that we say to you, visualize a red apple, like look, close your eyes and think about a red apple. Can you see it in your mind's eyes, so to speak? And then you say, yes. Uh, here we have, at least from a common sense point of view, a kind of ethical duty to believe that you actually do think about a red apple and you have an obligation to well, to be honest, to think about a red apple if you can and to report whether or not you can do it. Uh, an interesting difference would be that if you had a robot that had some sort of, you know, synthetic plastic brain or something like that, and you ask it, you know, think think about a red apple, you know, can you envision it in, in, in your robotic mind? Do you see it in front of you, so to speak, when you close your eyes and you look in, in, within and the robot says yes, 
Now here it's not as clear that we have the corresponding sort of ethical duty to take it as you know, at its word at face, face value. And it may or may not be a moral agent with a kind of corresponding obligation to be honest uh, with the person asking the question. Uh, of course, you know, I mean, you, you can discuss back and forth whether or not that's the case, but it does seem that it's not as obvious in the case of a human and, and a, a robot or other technology that the same sort of duties of trust and, and honesty uh, apply. So that might complicate this kind of test when you look at the functionality, because indeed it could very well be that the robot, in a certain sense, it, it registers what you're saying and it does respond, yes, I try, I'm trying to envision a red apple, but it's uh, some sort of large language model that that knows that this is uh, the, the most likely response that someone would, you know, if you're given this prompt, then the, the words that would follow in a response would be, yes, I, I, I'm envisioning a red apple, where maybe we don't have any good reason to know whether or not this actually is correct on the one hand, but on the other hand, we also maybe don't have this kind of ethical duty to, to trust it, and it doesn't perhaps have an obligation to, to tell the truth, because maybe it's just a different type of thing, and so we don't, we're not sure whether those kinds of duties apply. I, I mean, I don't think that's, that's a kind of a knockdown, drag out, whatever the expression is, argument against your, your type of view, but it does seem to be a relevant difference between technologies and humans that we have these sort of pre-existing ideas about we should trust humans. They should be honest uh, I mean, within certain limits. I mean, you know, it's not an absolute duty to trust or absolute duty to be honest. But we have some sort of fairly strong duty uh, on, on both sides there. But when it comes to technology, this is not equally clear that we should trust it. Maybe we should actually be skeptical. And, well, perhaps it's a moral agent, the robot, perhaps not. It's hard to tell. So this seems to be an obstacle when it comes to whether you can apply the same kind of behavioral tests that you can uh, in the human case. I mean, what do you think about, I mean, I don't know if I expressed it clearly. But, uh, yeah, no, I mean, look, I mean, here's another way of getting at it. Uh, so Rob Long, who's written a lot about some mm. of these questions, um, said this to me in an, uh, he's actually written about this, but he, in an interview I did, I did with him, I think it's a good analogy. He said, you know, if, if, you, if a parrot says I'm in pain, Mm. It has that behavior. Do you believe that it's in pain? Well, probably not, because when a parrot is giving speech responses, it's just mimicking behavior. It's not actually, we don't think it necessarily reports what the parrot is really thinking about. So there isn't that obvious mapping between speech behavior, at least, and an inner mental state in the case of a parrot, as there is in the case of a human, because we expect the human to, in most cases, be honest. Although obviously there's plenty of context in which humans are not honest as well. And I mean, by analogy, people who are familiar with debates about AI and large language models will know that you know one of the famous critiques of them or ethical discussions of them analogizes them with parrots, right? Says they're stochastic parrots. So if a large language model says that it's in pain, there's no reason to believe that it's in pain because it's just kind of parroting a response to whatever prompt you gave to it. So I think that's kind of the that's sort of the concern here is that in in the case of a human, we have some previous reason to think that there is this mapping between certain kinds of behavioral responses and an inner mental state of some kind. Whereas in the case of machines, we certainly have a lot more doubt about whether there is a mapping between its behaviors and some sort of inner mental state. Look, my, my response to that kind of objection is that I, I think that it, it kind of comes down to what our default moral position is, right? 
I think our default moral position when it comes to humans is that we automatically assume that most humans have moral patency and or have have a mental life or inner mental states. And so we kind of treat it as a default that their external behaviors map directly to those inner mental states. But there are contexts in which that presumption can be defeated. It's it's a defeasible presumption because there's context in which we think the person is lying or we have some other reason to think that they actually can't perform that mapping, right? Some other yeah. evidence to suggest that. I think that when it comes to machines at the moment, we're in a position where we're very unsure about that relationship. And so I, I think as a matter of fact, humans or machines or AI would have to do a lot to convince us its behaviors would have to become very convincing and very consistent over time to convince us that there is some sort of mapping between those behaviors and some in, inner mental state. But it could well be the case that eventually they will convince us and we'll start treating them as a moral default as if they have these kind of moral properties. Now, you, you know, like you might say, that's a very kind of unsatisfactory position because we want to know now like what the mapping is or we want to be very sure of what the the mapping is right now before we decide these moral questions. But I, I think it's an inevitable feature of how how our kind of moral systems develop that we just uh, we need to kind of have time living with these creatures or these entities to determine what their moral status is. And and in this sense, this is one area where my kind of behaviorist view, I think, does overlap a lot with the relational view of people like Gunkel and Kugelberg is that we haven't reached the moral default of assuming AI has moral patience yet, and it's it's a question of when we'll kind of cross that threshold. But it'll take it'll take more to convince us that we've crossed that threshold. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, yeah, I think I agree with a lot of that. But the, the only thing I would add about the, that argument that I was trying to develop it would be that in addition, in addition to having sort of the default assumption that people indeed are conscious, uh, we would also have this default idea that we are supposed to trust them. So even if someone turns out to have their brain the wrong way, like if you do like some sort of internal uh, scans to see what they look like, they're very unusual. Still, if if you think that they're a human being, uh, then nevertheless you're supposed to sort of take them at their word just because they're a member of the moral community. Uh, and where that kind of idea, uh, and, and actually you, you could see it as a kind of moral way of solving the other mind's problem. Okay, so maybe I can only observe brain states and behaviors, but there's also the moral duty to, to kind of trust your fellow human being within certain limits. Whereas uh, with a non-human entity, uh, then may, there may or may not be that you know, additional moral requirement to trust them, to take them at their word. So I think that that adds another complication. Uh, you could respond and perhaps that, yes, uh, at the moment, we don't have a socially accepted uh, moral duty to trust uh, technologies and what they say, but it could very well be that in the future we will change our norms and so that we will extend this obligation to trust and obligation to be honest also to uh, you know, people interacting with technologies. But I, I, it seems to me that we don't yet have that as a kind of additional thing, in addition to just assuming that humans on the one hand are moral patients and on the other hand, assuming that they are conscious. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's probably a similar similar uh, issue, but um, I mean, we, we could get into a longer discussion about trust. Uh, I'm So I'm not sure that even in the human case, it's a question of trust. I think it's more a question of what the default assumption is. There's plenty of context in which you wouldn't want to trust what another human 
says or absolutely it's, it's not absolute so it's like if yeah. you're acting uh or if you are known to be a liar or whatever there might be well i mean if you're if you're a police officer conducting an interrogation of a suspect there's plenty of reasons why in that particular context you might want to trust what they're saying to you right. um so i think i think a lot of these things depend on context and i, I suppose i'd also add that i think there's many areas in which we do actually sort of trust in one sense, at least, um, machines and what they what they say and what they do to us, we we trust the information that they provide to us and so forth. So, I mean, we we've we've really we've reached a point where, and I, I like I know that philosophers would disagree with the use of this language, but you know, whenever I call up um, Google Maps and I ask it to give me the directions to an an address, I trust it. You know, so I I don't question whether it's uh, lying to me or not. So I, we've reached that state, I think, with certain kind of functions of technology where we trust them. And put, I'm doing kind of scare quotes here for people who are listening. Um, and I think the same thing would happen eventually with machines reporting on mental states, basically. Yeah, I mean, as, as you said, some people would say that we should we should here talk about relying on the technology as opposed to trusting. We're trusting involves a certain uh, additional things such as that if if it turns out that uh, the directions given by a human were not reliable uh, accurate then maybe you would blame them or something like that if you think that they were trying to mislead you whereas if google maps led you to the wrong place or by a bad route then you would i don't know be, maybe be upset with google or something like that but you wouldn't blame uh the, the app uh, i mean maybe you would blame the app but some people think that that would be a mistake now i mean one question i had for you that maybe would take us in the direction of the idea of symbolism representation as an alternative way of thinking is, I mean, it's, so we were talking, when we talk about the properties, do they have the properties question that a lot of people think that today, uh, you know, robots are not, or other machines are not conscious. I mean, do you think that there are technologies that already behave in such a way that would justify the kind of the, the ethical behaviors conclusion that, okay, they, they behave in a similar enough way to humans that we should treat uh, the, the technology with a certain amount of moral consideration? Or do you take the view that, uh, well, not yet, but uh, you know, maybe sometime soon, we will be able to build robots that really behave in a human or animal-like way. And at that point, we should treat them with moral consideration. Uh, yeah, it, I mean, it's, I like it's, it's always easy to say not yet, but someday soon or sometime in the future, these things will right. happen. Um, and that that's always not always a satisfactory position. I suppose, like I'm, I'm not, I'm personally not convinced that there's any AI system in existence right now that has moral patience, certainly of of an equivalent level to a human being, or even like a higher order mammal or something like this, right? Uh, but I mean, it, it's possible that there are some in existence. I think that have some minimal capacity to experience the world or understand the world um, that has some, maybe some kind of moral considerability, maybe on the level of like a, an earthworm or a, an insect or something like this. And there are people out there, I think we should take that very seriously, the moral status of insects very seriously. Right. But um, like if I said one more concrete thing, when um, Lard, what, what, you know, chat, GPT and GPT-4 sort of came out earlier this year, the year that we're recording this. There's a lot of discussion about whether they understand things. In so, and, you know, there are critics like Emily Bender and so forth say, well, they definitely don't understand things. They're just 
these stochastic parts repeating responses. I mean, like my view is that I think the current crop of large language models do actually have some capacity to understand things. And I think it's very hard to say that they don't. Um, I, I mean, I think it's a very unusual or abstruse or specially pleaded form of understanding that you're saying that they don't have. Because it, uh, like, to, in order to actually respond to the prompts that we give it in such a sort of cons pretty reliable and sophisticated way, I think those language models have to have some kind of model or representation of the world internally. And so they have to me, they already have this kind of mental property. And so it seems like we're not yeah. in that sense, if they have that mental property, I don't see any obvious reason why they can't acquire some of these other things. So I think we're already at the point where AI has some some of these mental properties. Okay, no, because but what I was going to say was that uh, uh, if you think that robots or language models, whatever it might be, don't yet have uh, the, the relevant capacities or behaviors, you might still think, as I think Spar Robert Sparrow does and uh, Kathleen Richardson uh, does, that they could already be a kind of symbol or representation of something uh, that matters morally, and that could already be a problem. So Sparrow thinks that if you kick a robot dog, if you en enact a rape fantasy with a sex robot, even a very very non-human-like sex robot, a non-human-like uh, robot, a uh, dog-like uh, robot, that could still already be ethically problematic. Why? Because it somehow conjures up the idea of violence against animals or, or rape of human beings. And so that is already showing, they think, as Spare and Richardson, that either you have a kind of bad uh, know, personality or something like that, or that you're someone who would want to kick animals or want to rape uh, pe people. Uh, and that can already be a moral problem, even if the robot doesn't have any morally relevant properties, even if it doesn't behave in a way that sort of would uh, you know, meet the, the, the standard for the ethical behaviorist position. So that's the reason why I also identify this third question of and does it does your behavior towards the robot symbolize something that could be considered as bad? Yeah, and I mean, I think that makes sense. And I, yeah, I understand that that's one way of kind of leading into the question, the question you asked me, is that even if they don't have the properties, they might symbolize or represent them. And if they symbolize or represent them, there might be some reason to treat them as if they do or to have certain kind of moral duties towards them. And yes, Robert Sparrow's defended that view. I mean, I have, I suppose, kind of defended that view as well. It was some of my early work on right. robot sex was about like rape fantasies with robots and why there might be some reasons to uh, criminalize or prohibit robots that uh, encourage such fantasies. And that was like, I suppose when I think about that question, I, I tend to go into debates about our attitude towards art and um, the moralization of art. You know, is it okay to um, enjoy racist jokes or something like this or laugh at racist jokes? I think there, it probably isn't in some way that it's at least some kind of minor moral uh, contravention or uh, moral misdeed. And I think the same thing could be true of how we treat uh, other kinds of symbols. Um, you know, I think the same could be true of how we treat like statues and things like that, desecrating statues or um, hacking kind of the limbs off a statue could be morally problematic because of what it simulates as well, or or sorry, what it represents or symbolizes. So I, I yeah. do I do think there is an ethics or a, an eth 
a, no, a set of uh, moral duties towards symbols in some sense. The only the complication that I have towards that position, which I did write about in a paper years ago called the symbolic consequences argument in the sex robot debate, which is in the edited collection on robot sex, which you also appear in, um, is that I think maybe symbols, th there's an assumption that symbols have some kind of fixed moral meaning. And I'm not always sure that that's true. I think I think that could kind of vary depending on, on the consequences of it. So, I mean, this, this is a controversial example and I don't necessarily agree with it, but here's, here's one way that that could pan out. So at the moment, it could be the case that we assume that if somebody wants to have sex with a, uh, a child sex doll or something like that, that seems to symbolize something deeply problematic. We think it shows sort of bad moral character. We might worry that it means that the person is more likely to carry out kind of real world child sexual abuse or something like this. Um, and so for all those reasons, it symbolizes something bad and we think it you shouldn't do it. It could be the case. And uh, yeah, I'll just add that I've, I've written an article saying that it's probably very difficult to actually ascertain this or prove this, but it could in principle be the case that we establish that people who have sex with child sex dolls are much less likely to engage in real world child sexual uh, abuse. And this, this is actually an effective way of preventing that kind of harm or treating that kind of harm. And in that case, it could be that the symbol changes its meaning. So instead of being something we should worry about, it becomes actually something that we should encourage or favor in some sense. So the the actual moral status of the symbolic meaning of some of an act or uh, an entity isn't necessarily fixed. It does depend on other factors. Yeah, I mean, I think actually it's uh, interesting to compare Sparrow and uh, Richardson's views about this. I think Richardson seems to have the view that... Uh, uh, the, the position that you described is now that maybe it will lower the likelihood of uh, sexual acts towards the children or, or rape or whatever it might be. I, I think she's just skeptical. She, she, she thinks that uh, it will encourage people, it will embolden people, etc. And uh, for that reason, given that real people might be harmed, uh, we just shouldn't uh, permit these kinds of sex dolls or sex robots. Uh, Sparrow, and, and so she doesn't care about... Uh, well, not primarily doesn't care about, you know, is it a sign of vice or lack of virtue or something like that. Whereas Sparrow, on the other hand, I think he thinks that, uh, let's say that enacting some sort of rape fantasy with a sex robot would make you less likely to rape a human person. Nevertheless, because there's something morally deeply problematic about rape, the very act of enacting the, uh, you know, the rape fantasy, even if it would make you less likely to rape a human, it would still be unethical because it would symbolize something that's bad. It would show that you have a moral character that's flawed. And so uh, so he, he takes the symbolic sort of argument to a much more, I don't know, uh, I don't know, purified, so to speak, a point where the symbolism really does matter independently of whether, uh, you know, the, the thing that your act symbolizes would be more or less likely to happen in real life. Uh, whether or not you, you you perform the action so he would be a better representative of this view as a kind of view of its own uh where well one interesting thing i might mention that he has the kind of asymmetric view that yes it's possible to perform an action towards a robot such as such as kid kicking it or something like that that would show that you have negative character traits but it's not correspondingly possibly 
possible to be nice towards a robot and thereby show yourself to be a good person. Uh, that he thinks you can only do if you're nice to an actual human being or animal or something like that that could benefit from your treatment. So he thinks if you act towards a robot that isn't a moral patient in a bad way, that means that you might be a morally bad person. But if you're nice or good towards a robot that's not a moral person in a good way, then that doesn't show that you're a good person. So that's kind of interesting idea that negative symbolism matters morally. Positive symbolism is not enough to show that you did something morally good. Yeah. So, I mean, the other thing I would say about that in Sparrow's view is that um, it, like, it could be the case that there's certain kinds of symbolic meaning that are relatively more incorrigible or difficult to change or stickier than others. And again, like, like the rape fantasy robot could be an instance of that. It's just it's very difficult to disassociate um, what seems to be something intrinsically morally wrong about that from kind of any any broader consideration. Um, it, but it could be it could be the case that in those scenarios we tolerate it because it seems to have more kind of beneficial moral consequences in in the same sense that we we tolerate lots of things that we're not like perfectly happy with but through tolerating them we achieve kind of some better overall overall moral equilibrium so it, it could be that there's there's still some sort of intrinsic wrong associated with it but it's an acceptable form of in, intrinsic wrong it could be that there's other kinds of symbols that are much more neutral in their meaning um i mean th like there's hard cases of this which i discussed in 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 the chapter that i wrote about it but like you know the treatment of dead bodies has very different meanings in different cultures you know some people think it's um offensive to burn them a lot of people think that's what you should do with them some people think it's offensive to eat dead bodies uh, human bodies other cultures historically at least have seemed to have thought that that was perfectly acceptable um so you know what i it's it's hard to know what the how fixed these symbolic meanings really are i think we should probably wrap up at this point um maybe we could just briefly comment on uh well yeah because we have an opportunity to discuss some more of these kind of issues anyway in in the next episode but uh maybe we should just wrap up by talking about recommendations for kind of further reading or um study on this topic uh, and then we can uh, yeah, well, I mean, uh, uh, yeah, so maybe one thing we can follow up in the next episode would be like, you know, should we be talking about these topics in the first place? Is, is it a kind of waste of time, etc.? I mean, we will talk about relationships with robots, etc. So, yeah, I, I think I think we can we can do that at the end of both of these topics because they sort of all come together because I think the people who are opposed to the discussion of this topic are equally kind of opposed to the discussion of the next topic as well. So yeah. Indeed, because as I said, some people think it's a waste of time. It's even unethical, according to some people, to talk about this in the first place. We should be talking about more important topics. And so, so yeah, that's I think that's an interesting point of view that we should be discussing. Now, in terms of uh, recommendations, actually, uh, just uh, uh, a couple of days before we recorded this episode, David Gunkel came out with a new book, that's called person thing robot i think uh I, I don't know the order is like person robot thing or something like that but person thing robot i think it is sorry uh, david in case i'm getting it wrong now one nice thing about that book uh, i mean it's a good book but it's also in open access so uh, if people want to read about this and they don't want to pay uh <laughs> whatever it costs to buy a book about this then 
uh, that would be a, you know something that they can access uh, easily by just going to the MIT website for David Gunkel's book. And one, uh, I mean, David's uh, writing has many virtues. One is it's very clear, it's engaging, and he's very thorough in in terms of you know the, the positions that he discusses. And uh, so whether or not one agrees with his views, I mean, some people might agree with them, some people might not. I think a lot of people would find it uh, sort of rewarding to engage with his writings on this topic. So that would be my recommendation, person, thing, robot. Yeah, I know, and it is person thing robot. I just uh, looked it up there while you were saying it, and I I haven't read that book yet. Um, but give uh, robot rights, which he published in twenty eighteen, is a, I think a good overview of the the state of the art from five or six years ago. So I would assume that this book is kind of equivalently comprehensive in it, in its perspective. And the other, so the recommendation I would have is an article or a study by a group of researchers called Consciousness in Artificial Intelligence, Insights from the Science of Consciousness. The lead authors on that are Patrick Butlin and Robert Long. So I think this is a good paper on how we could actually really empirically test for whether an AI is conscious by applying existing theories of consciousness, specifically kind of uh, neuroscientific theories of consciousness. So this is um, a paper which is grounded in what I previously called like this kind of cognitive functionalist view or mechanistic view of determining status. But I think it's a it's quite a thorough paper. It goes through a lot of these different theories in detail and a pretty well-conceived paper. And I would agree with a lot of the perspectives that they offer. So I would recommend that. And that's not published as far as I know. It's available on this um, website which i never know how to pronounce archive is it you know a-r-x-i-v i think it's pronounced archive or something like that yeah uh, i don't know how to pronounce it but i know what you're talking yeah about. like i mean historically it's where a lot of like you know physics papers were originally published but now it's kind of a lot of science papers more generally tend to get uh, uh published online there in, in an open access format prior to publication so yeah i'd recommend checking that out and actually if you don't want to read the full paper there is quite a nice summary of it on the Daily News blog or um, or Nous, I, I guess I think it's supposed to be Daily News as as far as I recall when I uh, discussed it with the author, which is a popular philosophy blog from earlier this year. I can put up a link to it anyway when I post this episode uh, online. It's, they actually only published it recently, so um, we're recording this in September of 2023. So they published it on the first of September 2023. So it's. Uh, a short summary of that uh, research study, which I, I recommend. So those that'd be my recommendation. Okay, well, and, and David Ganko's book came out on the fifth of September, so we're uh, recommending things that are hot off the presses at, at the time. Of yeah, well, of course, this episode won't uh, probably yeah. go out for for a while, but it, it'll be ancient history by the time people listen to this. But yeah, okay, let's uh, leave it at that, and um, thanks again. All right, thank you.